dang. There's a lot been going on in five years. Um, yeah, I think we're all thankful for the changes that we've gone through and all the people that we've grown to love and be able to have fellowship with and relationship with and share our lives and our burdens with and all of these things. Um, but yeah, five years ago, we started this sermon arc, and it was based on several different topics or whatever that were supposed to help us make good, beautiful choices in our lives, to live a life that is beautiful in God's eyes. And we had a little sentence that was supposed to help us remember those things. And so, because last month was the last month in the actual content of this sermon arc, these next couple of months is just us sort of summarizing and hitting these things over and over again. So, you guys that weren't here for some of this, um, you get sort of a brief overview of what those things are and have an opportunity to kind of like put this stuff together. But this sentence was, when my, when my endeavors draft futility, God's answer inspires lasting beauty. Um, yeah, that stands for, each letter stands for something. For something to think about when you're making choices so that you know that you are um, putting in your best effort at making a beautiful choice and living a beautiful life before God. Those things were wisdom, maturity, education, discernment, uh, faith, uh, investment, let's see, I'm not good at holding things in my brain, I'm trying to do it by memory, investment, accountability, uh, leadership, or legacy, and then beauty. I think I got all of them. Oh, investment. I missed investment. Oh, did? Yes! Um, yeah, all of those revolving around this concept of beauty. Beauty was introduced five years ago, and that's what we want to continue to talk about in these next couple months, too. Um, but beauty, if you go back to the first sermon of the year by Josh, like five years ago, we're talking about God's ability to create as opposed to man's ability to restructure. That's what true beauty is. That's what resonates with us. It's seeing God's hand, if you will, on several dimensions of your life and your choices and things like that. God speaking into your life through your actions and into the, life, into the lives of others. You may say that's the work of the Holy Spirit if you're trying to be more particular about that in terms of how this um, real beauty is reflected through how we live, something that actually aspires to God's idea of beauty. In that process, God's creating fruit from your fallen, dead human life in sin, right? It's God's ability to create fresh fruit in your life that is supposed to attract other people, introducing something qualitatively, categorically, something that's by nature different into the world, as opposed to the same old selfish goals of man. Those are the things that reflect beauty for us. We've attempted to use this sentence and these different topics to help us um, learn and remember what goes into living God's version of beauty instead of man's 
marred vision, version of beauty. When my endeavors draft futility, God's answer inspires lasting beauty. So, these last few sermons are your last chance to memorize that. Uh, put it in your toolkit, you know? Even if it's in your Bible study notes or something like that, or when you're looking to make good choices, when you sit down to think about stuff, when you're on your date night and you want to talk about how you want to live your next five-year plan, you can go through these things and say, how are we meeting all these? Are we really trying our best to live a beautiful life before God and before man? So, it can be our checklist, if you will. Uh, each thing being a filter for evaluating our choices, and each category building onto the previous ones. So, we're going to start with the first in the chain, which is what? Yeah, it's wisdom is the first one. That is the starting point, and everything builds off of that. We have a mechanism to help us grasp the philosophical part of being a disciple of Christ, of wisdom, and that is what we call doctrine. Doctrine is like the conglomeration of all these important things that reflect the wisdom of God in a few heavy but also simple things. Um, yeah, when we... I don't know if you guys remember talking about ACEs, but it's a program that uses the speak tether ground method, right? And it has the goal of growing people in the scriptures, getting them into a local body, and growing them in their understanding of doctrine. It's because doctrine is one of those extremely foundational things for a believer in terms of getting on that path to living a life that understands God and allows you to live a life that is um, worthy of your calling. So, I want to spend some time today talking about that in representation of God's wisdom, what God considers beautiful and enables us to be equipped to do that, to live a life that's beautiful. Um, doctrines are essential truths about God and us and our relationship. They're really valuable. It sounds, I don't know about you, but to me, I hear the word doctrine and I'm like, oh, that sounds really boring. That sounds above my pay grade or something. It's not above my pay grade anymore because I, you know, put my time in or whatever. And so I am going to be held accountable by God to know those things. But y'all may think to yourself, doctrine, that sounds like something that the eldership and maybe the deacons can handle, and I'm just going to plant my butt in church, and I'm going to learn what I can. But it is incredibly valuable, and it's attainable. Um, so yeah, we want to talk about some of those things today. Doctrines are essential truths about God, and they're clashing with almost everything that the world teaches in terms of the implications of how you're going to live your life. So there's really nothing boring about it and they bear fruit. So let's take a look at some examples about doctrine and about how they're necessary for a rock-solid foundation as a disciple of Christ. So just going through really like the summary version of a few of these important doctrines. Let's, talk, let's check out um, the attributes of God. So we start with the incommunicable ones, which means that 
they separate God apart from the rest of his creation. It's only something that God has. Interdependent and self-existent. That's what God is. He exists alone, not dependent on anything or anyone or whatever. Immutability means that God doesn't change over time. He's reliable. We can count on him. And he can count on himself. That's why he swears upon himself, like there's nothing bigger or anything else that can influence him. He is infinite and eternal. He is simple. Though he's, God is three persons in one essence in nature, he's also simple and reachable and knowable on all sorts of levels. There's the phrase that you can know God truly, though never know him exhaustively, just like any of us. We'll never know another person to the fullest extent. That's what makes us interesting as people. We're created in God's image, and so we have a little bit of this trace going on, but the simplicity of God. So then we have the attributes of God, the communicable ones, which is um, we have those two in a finite way, and those are things like wisdom and goodness and even holiness and love and sovereignty even that you find in things like free will, um, all those things. We're looking at these things today. This is just one category. We're going to go through more, but keep this in mind. As we're making choices in our lives, as we're figuring out who we're going to be, what we're going to do, um, sitting down when we have a troubling situation and we want to figure out what is the most godly way to do to deal with it, what is the wise way to deal with something. We want to be able to look to our God, the creator, the person that we come from, the person that we aspire to be most like, and see what kind of wisdom God's wisdom has instead of what we've been stuffed with our whole lives. The next thing is divine providence. And we're going to go through some examples of these things later, of questions that you might come across or what you might ask in your life. Um, God actively sustains every bit of matter and every creature creature in divine providence, in the doctrine of divine providence. That means he just didn't wind up all of creation and let it go and forget about it, right? That doesn't mean that God knit you together in the womb and then once you were birthed, then you're on your own and God checks in every now and then. But God is intrinsically supporting every atom in your body, every molecule, every piece of you, and holding it together and understands you in an incredibly deep way. Every single one of us, that obviously ties to the infinite nature of God because only somebody like that would even have a shot at doing that for a couple people, let alone billions and all of those that have existed over time and all of these things. But this type of thing, it's a, it's a very foundational, like, philosophical perspective on things. And these things have implications for how we live our lives in terms of things. Like, it's easy to think about God as, you know, somebody that you just check in with every now and then, and so you put on to him that maybe he's doing the same or whatever. But he's with us every second, supporting us in every single way. Um, and he has an investment in his creation because of that. He operates not outside of us, but in tandem with us, right? It's called divine concurrence. He operates 
alongside of us and not only just keeps us um, together, like physically, but also enables the free choices that we make. He is part of those things. And we'll discuss that a little bit later in more depth too. But we have the doctrine of sin, which is a big one in terms of understanding our nature. Sin is breaking God's laws. It comes attached to guilt and consequence, and that's because of Adam's choice. And we have a corrupt nature. We are oriented towards sin as people from birth. Right? Even sweet little babies are oriented towards sin. Right? Eliana? Right, Brielle? Yeah, even sweet little babies. This is a foundational perspective on things. It is a source of wisdom from God that we don't get from the world. The world sees little babies and says, oh, look at the cute little babies. They are perfect and they are innocent. And that is true in some respects, but it's not true at their nature, and it's not, it leads us in the wrong direction if we live our lives that way. Um, that sin nature comes with a guilt on multiple levels with that. And so that leads us to the doctrines, just throwing them all together, of redemption and grace and Christ's atonement of us, paying for our sins, a.k.a. Um, the Father and Son were designated, or sorry, the Father and Son designed and executed this plan of redemption through grace and the atonement of all those things from the beginning to redeem us from the consequence of sin. That's something that sometimes gets overlooked in terms of our functional understanding of things. We think, oh, we were sinning, and God like, came up with this plan to like, fix that and whatever. God exists outside of time, and he was planning these things from the beginning, not um, separate from each other, the Father and Son, but together. The eternal Son decided that it was a good plan between the two of them to lower himself to our level, to become fully human and live a life that was fully human and suffer like we did, and live a life without sin, though he was capable of sin. And yet he gives himself as a sacrifice, even though he conquered those things, even though he beat the system that was trying to keep him down, that was trying to tempt him. He gives himself up as a sacrifice and pays for our sin with his death. And it was an eternal, perfect sacrifice for eternal guilt. These are deep doctrinal issues, and a lot of us know them. A lot of us know them decently well. The question is, continually, keeping on topic, how do these things relate when we're considering the, deci the decisions that we're making? Um, yeah. Like, it's a common misconception in terms of this understanding doctrine. It's a, it's a common mis misconception in Christianity that the father of the Old Testament, angry at sin and all these things, could not stand the sight of man. And so... Jesus had to step in and, like, take the hit, you know? 
take the hit for mankind in his love to protect us from the angry and wrathful father who hates sin and hates evil and all these things. It's not really a good picture of the whole story. And it's a relational story because our God is three persons in and of himself. And so it teaches us of how to interact. We'll talk more about that later too. We come to a doctrine of Christ. There's several ones that are oriented on him specifically, but we're going to talk about the offices of Christ really quick. He has three offices, three roles, if you would call it that. Priest, prophet, and king. And previously, those roles were separated amongst different leaders in God's people. You know, but Jesus came and united all those roles in leadership, and that serves as an example for us too. He served as a priest representing sinful man before a righteous God and absolving our sin like priests do. They intercede and make sacrifices and help you come before God clean. He was a prophet telling us what we need to know and calling for us to change our ways, a.k.a. representing God before man. He was a king, not a king of this world as we wanted and as the Jews wanted, but a king of something much bigger than that and ultimately encompassed the world because part of the Father's agreement with Christ in terms of him making this sacrifice is that all authority was going to be put under him. So he is king over everything. And he represents that. Um, yeah, wisdom in these matters is the starting point. Wisdom in terms of the choices that we're making is the starting point for righteousness. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Respecting God in how he deserves is the beginning of wisdom. But the question is, is your fear of the Lord, is your respect of the Lord just blind fear? You may call it faithful, you know? But is it blind? Do you um, fear God? Some people fear God like they fear an angry bear, you know? Where they're keeping it in line, they're always keeping their face toward God, you know, like making sure that they're ready for whatever it is, making sure they're not making any wrong moves or whatever because the consequences are heavy. Or, you know, do you fear God like the gnashing teeth of a shark? Or do you fear God like the pitch black dark because you just don't know what it is on the other side? You don't exactly know. You know that you need to be good. But aside from that, you're not really sure... Um, how to act in response to God, aside from doing your best and, and not wanting to end up on the bad side of the stick or in the hole that you stumbled into or whatever. Or do you fear God like, I don't know, an awkward social situation, you know, where you just really don't want to experience that guilt you don't want to experience that shame in front of other people and believers and things like that. Is that how you fear God? 
or is it the kind of fear which calls for respect? And real respect requires a knowledge and understanding of a person to put yourself into that role of a disciple, you know? If you really respect somebody, you want to be like them. You want to imitate parts of them. You need to know those things first. You would ask questions of that person. You would become familiar. You'd talk to their, you know, family and stuff. You do whatever you can to figure out how it is that you're going to be a good disciple and respect that person. Um, when we have respect for people, we also are driven to do what they approve of, right? And so we want to know exactly how God thinks, what he approves of, you know? That's how you become favored in, like, the workplace and stuff, right? Or in your family, whatever it is, is you anticipate what it is that your master, whoever that is, wants, and you work and you do those things. But the more intimate of a knowledge that you have of that person, the more successful you're going to be. The truth is, is that true wisdom in terms of understanding doctrine, allows us to live closer to our intended state in the kingdom of God. It allows us to live closer to knowing him and walking closely in fellowship with him, as God said that many people do, like Enoch, for example, who God loved so much he didn't even make Enoch die. Um, it allows us to feel less detached from God and less insecure in general. When we know somebody intimately, we feel secure with that person and they know us. It allows us to answer all those big questions and gives us something to do with it in a reasonable and cohesive way. I want to read Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse 8. In this reading from the prophet Isaiah, God says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It's the same with my word. I send it out, and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Where once there were thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. I don't know what those are, but they sound nice. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. Now this metaphor not only reveals a couple key attributes of God, such as his thoughts are nothing like our thoughts, and that, aka, we have a lot to learn from that and to imitate him in those things, and his wisdom is set apart categorically from ours. It's opposite of what our wisdom tends to be. Um, so we not only see a couple attributes of God in that, but we find that the scriptures, or the doctrines, because doctrine is basically scripture condensed down into its most dense, most meaningful, um, most well-supported truths about God, about us and our relationship. Uh, yeah, the doctrines found in the word 
are not just designed to increase information, but rather produce radical organic transformation, right? We have this environment in this passage that is filled with useless and harmful plants that are the product of sin, even. But now, good fruit is born out of that because of God's word, because of those things that are true about God that produce fruit that is beautiful to him. They are, yeah, it goes from bad fruit, from fruit that looks to harm, to fruit that has been redeemed for good and grows in its place. That's what we're looking for when we search the word of God and doctrine is one of those things that give us an incredible resource in terms of understanding God's wisdom and where that starts from, where to filter everything else down the line, maturity and education and discernment and accountability and all those things. If the scripture produces transformation, then so should the core, the concentrated principles from doctrine, and even more so. But transformation doesn't come from surface-level changes, right? A butterfly never formed by a caterpillar molting or doing whatever they do, shedding their skin, right? Or a butterfly never formed by a caterpillar doing enough crunches. You know how they do that thing? Never got awesome enough to become a butterfly, no matter how much the caterpillar worked out. Earth was never saved by trying to set off a bomb on the surface of an asteroid that was hurling toward Earth, as you've seen in the true story Armageddon, starring Bruce Willis. Um, instead, they drilled to the core. And that's where the solution was, is they drilled to the core and blew that sucker apart. The caterpillar had to change from the inside out in the protection of its cocoon. The power of sin was never dismantled by daily sacrifices, scratching at the surface of the problem. Instead, something more permanent and deep and deep down was needed. So let's dig down. Do you sit at the feet of your master and let his character and teaching reach down to your spirit? These are not the questions yet, just so you know. But there will be a lot of questions, and so they're meant for us to start processing these things. It's not that you need to answer all of these questions, although that would be great, but it's to think about the level at which we're dealing with stuff as we encounter things in our life, as we're trying to plan. How many, how many people have you know, stuff that you expect to do that's important in the next five years? Maybe it's you know, a lot of us are making decisions, like a lot of our young people are making decisions where they may be in the same career, which you spend like one-third of your, you know, week in, or whatever it is. I guess one-third of every weekday, eight hours, 24, it's one-third. Um, like, that's a huge part of your life. What are you going to do with that? What's going to motivate your decision for which path you're taking in those things? What are you planning on doing the next five years? You having kids? How are you going to go about that? What are you going to raise them doing? You know, what sort of relationships are going to be formed? What's God going to give you that you have no idea and that you're going to have to come together with your support system, whether that's your spouse or other people or your spouse and other people and your whole family. Like, we need to be thinking about things on these levels so that we can try to think 
how God thinks and produce fruit that's beautiful to him, starting with a proper fear of the Lord. So we should be able to identify some transformation in our mind and our thoughts and how that translates into our actions. Wisdom is basically defined as the ability to think and act using knowledge and experience and understanding common sense and insight. It's linking profound knowledge with real life application. That's what the gist of wisdom is. Since it starts with the fear of the Lord and doesn't end there, how do you respond to the attributes of God, for example? You hear these things, you're like, oh, that's some good knowledge to know about God. Talking about God's independence and self-existence, his immutability or unchangeability, his infinite and eternal nature, his simplicity and ability to be known and reached like a person. <clears throat> so, how do you respond to those things? When your life is crazy, are you a freaking rock? And I don't mean stone cold, I don't experience emotion, I don't get sad, but I mean, how is your stability? Are you not only stable, but even able to serve through that? You know? It's a great, um, it's a great witness to our God when we go through difficult things and people see that we're stable. You know, people notice those things. But if you're not only stable and you're able to continue to be functional and look after other people's needs, be concerned about other people, even though you're going through something that they know is going on, wow, that is testimony right there. That's something that communicates something about your God. And those are because of his unchangeable attributes, that he exists across time and space, controls all of those things. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, it's pretty good. So how's that surface training going on those things? You know, We train ourselves to be able to be functional in all sorts of ways. Those are good, but does it have a backing? The prophets all served to their deaths. And why is that? Because they really knew their God. They walked with him day in and day out. Are we able to do and say the same? Uh, how about divine providence? God actively sustains every bit of matter and every creature that he's made. Not just at the beginning, but now. He didn't just wind it up and forget about it. He has an investment in his creation. So, when you see a kid, let's say, trying to smash some bugs because it's fun and they're crawling around, you know, do you correct them on this basis? Do you even correct them at all? Do you think God doesn't care about his creatures that are running around um, doing their thing, being productive in our ecosystem? These things about who we know God to be translates to our perception of all of these things of nature that no creature, including us, but beyond us, no creature goes unnoticed and is unvalued by God. And it's not ours to crush and smash unless we have a good reason to do that. He did charge us with owning our creation and having dominion over it and so on and so forth, but he didn't charge us with abusing it. So... When you see somebody 
that's doing that is this factoring into your thought process of how you're going to correct that person, these attributes of how far God reaches and how involved he is with his creation. What about divine concurrence? That thing that was a part of divine providence where God uh, operates in tandem with each of us, not just physically holding us together, but his sovereign, all-powerful will allowing our secondary will to actually have a say in things, to actually do what we want in a significant way. If God is totally sovereign and we have free will, then he enables us in tandem, whether we choose good or we choose evil. God is not only able to turn into your mental or spiritual podcast, if you will, like what's going on in your mind or whatever, your radio station, when he wants, but he is by nature enabling your every action, and he sees and hears all of those things. Is that something that we take into account, you know, as we go about our mental thought life, as Josh put it, um, and keeping in mind that those things hurt God when we make bad choices, right? Or when we ignore things. When you have a thought that whispers by, maybe it's something that you want to do that's bad. Maybe it's something that you think that you should do and it's good, but you're like, oh, I don't have time for that or I don't want to do that or whatever is going on in the situation. And you brush it under the rug because as quickly as it comes, it can go also. God knows all those things. Are you taking those seriously as thoughts that God approved to go through your mind? Because that's what's happening. He notices it probably more than you do. Do you know and take seriously that he knows all about that? Do you repent or reflect or act on those things in your thought life? Or do you pretend that nobody notices because nobody will? None of us will notice 95% of the thoughts that you have, you know? But God knows intimately every single one of those. Do you take those seriously based on who you know God to be in his character, in his nature, and how closely he's tied with us and adopting that into our view of the world. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches that even our thoughts, like anger or lust, will be judged by the infinite and omniscient, all-knowing God. What about the doctrines of sin? Do you live and guard yourself with a realistic self-conception, with a realistic idea of who you are in terms of your sin nature, considering that your orientation towards sin is just that, towards sin. When you feel down because you realize you suck, which we all do, you know, we all make mistakes, and some of us take that particularly hard, do you think you're special in that? You're not special. When you suck and you feel bad about it, you are not special. We all suck, you know? And some of us, our sucking is more hidden, and some of us, our sucking is more overt, and we've been prepared in different ways um, to be, you know, better equipped to fight that or not, or to overcome those things. But at our core, we are not any different, you know? And so do you understand this about these doctrines about sin, that we are all 
the same, that we all four fall far short of the righteousness of God and that there's no real difference between us. God's like way up here and maybe some of us are like here and here. It's an inconsequential difference and it matters what we do. But in terms of getting down about that, it's not worth it. It's not doctrinally sound even in terms of the character of God in relation to who we are. We don't rely on ourselves like that to get by. We rely on Christ. Um, yeah. So, what about those sweet little babies? Can't trust them. Can't trust them. Start your loving and firm correction early. And why is that? Because they're predisposed toward sin and evil. They just are. We can talk about the nature and exactly how that works, but that's the truth of it, is that they are. And that's something that we need to inform our worldviews and lives about. Do you intentfully design your parenting, not based on what you were taught, but on who God is and who we are under God and what our relationship is and all of those things? Not a single person can escape sin by their own effort. You know, when we give counsel to other people, maybe about parenting, maybe about their own issues, when you give counsel, do you consider that, this doctrinal truth that not a single person can escape sin by their own effort? No matter how much you try to blow up that big asteroid coming at you or whatever, on the surface, it's still coming. <clears throat> and you've got to do something deep to make it change course. Right? The butterfly is never going to be a butterfly. It's going to be a friggin' worm unless you do something real and deep. When you give counsel, do you consider this? Do you lay a foundation of absolute dependence on God and on His grace and redemption and those things? Is that a part of your thought process when you're giving that counseling? And we all give counsel, not just those of us that actually counsel, but anybody from most kids even, counseling their friends about you know, what's going on in their lives to middle age and you know, old, super old people and like whatever. Everybody's counseling across the board because we all need help, because we're all sinful. Do you consider that God's power to free us from sin is essential in that victory? And that no matter how much we scratch the surface, it's only going to change the appearance. It's not going to create a transformation. These are huge worldview issues that that will form how we plan to take care of one another, right? How we plan to take care and raise our children right. How we plan to take care of those that are outside of God's body and need to be brought in to the sheepfold. And then, once we do that, we can consider those things like coaching the details, you know? then we can unite all those things. But without a foundation, what are you really doing? So, and then what about the doctrines of redemption and grace and atonement, those things? When you feel down because you realize you suck, do you try to weigh your value against others? It's human nature to be able to do that. And lots of us do it to different extents and in different ways, but we all compare instinctively. Do you allow that to reign supreme over your self-conception? Or do you allow God's view 
of you to reign supreme and take his word for truth? Do you allow his perfect payment for you to determine your real value? Or do you try to operate based on how good you're doing right now? You know? Yeah, we saw how the Father and Son worked together to save us, to give us that security, to give us that freedom that we could be in fellowship with God, guilt-free. So, do you work together with other leaders intentfully and tactfully? Tactically. Um, as we're planning to do, to live our lives and to be able to do this. Like, when's the last time you recognized the problem with somebody and went to somebody else and said, let's plan to help this person. We do it, but these things are in God's nature, and that's why we do those things. And sometimes it'll blip on our radar, probably because it's been modeled to us. But the truth of it is, is that a lot of times when we are doing our best, um, we're doing it just based on what has been modeled to us, what's been taught. And hopefully we've been taught godly things, and a lot of us have been, and a lot of us are continuing to be taught godly things. But what about God himself? When's the last time you sat down and said, who is God and how can I be like him to serve this other person? Um, yeah. I hesitate to do this because it makes me very emotional, but I feel like this is one of those things where an example is needed. Um, and I would encourage you to take this example and give yourself hope that you are capable of finding these things that can imitate God in a way that it doesn't imitate God, or in a way that, <laughs> that you can imitate God in a way that you don't see happening. It's not modeled to you. And there, I guarantee you, there are tons and tons of things out there that are, um, that you can pick up from God that we just don't see on a regular basis. And my example is this. I don't remember the details of things, but <laughs> basically, Sophia was having a, a really hard time, like, emotionally and psychologically and whatever, um, even spiritually. And, like, she was doing things that she wasn't supposed to do, and the consequences weren't really working. <laughs> and she was at a place where she couldn't even necessarily take the consequence in a way that would have been productive for her in the moment. And so, <laughs> what Josh did <laughs> was he told Sophia and explained to her about it and said that he would take her consequence. And so he did. And that is, <laughs> it wasn't a big consequence for Josh, but it was a big consequence for Sophia, you know? And it's not, what he did was allow her success 
while holding up the system that was building her into a godly woman. A system that held accountability still, that held holiness, but also held grace and forgiveness. And that was maybe the only way out for her. (laughs) That doesn't come from modeled behavior. It doesn't. Um, When we're talking about the eldership retreat, we're talking about trying to align ourselves with God's will and trying to figure those things out. And if you listen to the way that we talk about it and phrase those things, it's in submission to all of the biblical doctrines about who God is at his nature and who we are, that, that we are operating in tandem with him, trying our best to be aligned with his will, but understanding that we're in full dependence on him to be able to understand that. And in the process of being a prayerful and seeking his wisdom through his word and his doctrine and all those things, like, this is where it's all coming together. And we're talking about that, like I'm saying, in the, in the context of making plans for years in the future and trying our best to do right by who God is in those things. Are we doing that in our lives as families? Each family has the responsibility to do that. Each person has the responsibility to do that. And you will do well to do those things. What we've gone through today are just some of the important foundations of your relationship with God. I hope that some of those examples have at least given you the idea of the opportunity for ways that God's character can seep deeply into your life and transform your choices to live a beautiful life before God and before man. Wisdom, though, is just the start of this checklist that we have. But it is essential to the rest of them, you know? Maturity and education and discernment and faith and investment and being grounded and being legacy-minded, accountable. All of those things depend on our wisdom coming from God and seeking as deep of a root to that wisdom as we can. And then allowing the others to build upon it. And if we can do that, that's where God's light comes from. But it has to be starting at the foundation where fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Have you ever asked, why is there so much to learn about all this stuff? There's so much stuff to learn. You know? so many lists and so many concepts. It's because men and women across time have accepted the righteousness that God offers them and taken God seriously. They've dedicated their lives to delving deep into who God is, what his wisdom looks like, and how that plays out 
across who we are as people. That's why we've got so much literature and so much developed doctrine over centuries of people working hard and tirelessly and debating amongst themselves about the truth of who God is as revealed in his word. They sought to know God and to know themselves in light of him and to understand relationship. And then they sought to share God with the world through action and through their words. These are things that you don't find in the other religions of the world. And some of a lot of the pseudo-Christians, like fake imitation Christian religions, not even, because they have slight differences, but they make a huge difference in terms of who they view God to be at his core. And that ripples throughout the behavior and the pursuits of their followers, you know? But if you go on the internet, it's just, it's crazy how much there is about orthodox Christianity, you know? And yes, there are offshoots of that that are inappropriate, <clears throat> but it's just ludicrous how much there is out there. And it's because and across all sorts of things, not just knowledge about who God is, but about how to help people and how to serve. And there's you know, a whole book we've talked about about how Christianity brings cultural change to other nations, nations that have never cared about its people before, and so on and so forth. It's because these philosophical truths about who God is, if you allow them, and if you're submissive to who God is, will penetrate who you are and spread out. This is the type of wisdom that we need as God's people. Wisdom that has profound understanding working itself out through actions. But we need to take the time to allow our hearts and our minds to digest these things and to think about what we're going through right now and what we will be going through so that we can do right by that. And consider that God's word goes against the grain, that it's foolish by man's standards, that it's offensive by man's standards. And that's why we need to take deliberate time to look at these doctrines, to look at the word of God closely. We have lots of resources to do that, even everyday people, you know? But we need to guard against it being obscured and tweaked a little bit. Gone over it a million times, but it's seminal to our understanding of who we are. Satan obscured God's word in the beginning, altering it just enough in the Garden of Eden, like we've gone over even in recent months and weeks even, just enough to steer man off course. You know, is that really what God said? Is that really what he said? No. That fruit, it's not going to make you die. It's going to be good for you. That obscuring to be self-centered, to be man-centered instead of God-centered. It was wisdom starting with man's self-interest, a.k.a. fear of man, instead of starting with fear and respect of the Lord that started this whole deal. This technique worked so well, slightly tweaking the truth of those things, worked so well that Satan has been using it ever since. And he continues to do that. We see things that are just a little off from the truth 
but when you delve into them, they make a big difference in terms of how you're going to live your life. So we need to consider these things as we lead ourselves and our families and our body here in the name of Christ. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. I'm going to add the word true at the beginning just so you know it doesn't actually exist there. But true wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries out in the public square. She calls to the crowds along the main street, to those gathered in front of the city gate. How long, you simpletons, will you insist on being simple-minded? How long will you mockers relish your mocking? How long will you fools hate knowledge? Come and listen to my counsel. I'll share my heart with you and make you wise. I called you so often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, but you paid no attention. You ignored my advice and rejected the correction I offered. So I will laugh when you're in trouble. I will mock you when disaster overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster engulfs you like a cyclone and anguish and distress overwhelm you, when they cry for help, I will not answer. Though they anxiously search for me, they will not find me. For they hated knowledge and they chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected my advice and paid no attention when I corrected them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way, choking on their own schemes. For simpletons turn away from me to death. Fools are destroyed by their own complacency. But all who listen to me will live in peace, untroubled by fear of harm. What God is saying is that his wisdom is readily available for you, and today more than ever. But you have to seek it, and you have to not reject it. You know, We've got a thousand resources here to help you in all sorts of things, from you know, Bible studies and, and whatever, to a great digital library that is all good stuff. Um, seek it. And what this is saying is that there's a point where you're making choices not based on godly wisdom, not reflecting God's beauty, and he will let you go through those consequences. And you'll have to go through that process of repentance and coming back to God, and he will listen. But you're going to go through some stuff first. You're going to learn. I think most of us have experienced that process, and it's not awesome. Um, but thankfully, through the grace of God and his doctrine of redemption and uh, grace and uh, atonement, we can have confidence that he will accept us when we turn to him. So this is why doctrine should never be reserved only for the brains of our academics and theologians, but doctrine is to be the foundation of your worldview. Wisdom is not to hoard, but to share. You know, so learn it so that you can live it and so it can be shared. Do you know somebody who just sucks at life and pays for it regularly? You know? They need God's wisdom. Everyday advice you find in Proverbs, yes, but backed by the foundational truth meat of God's revelation, by his doctrine, by those things that are just by his nature pervade your life in terms of how you interact and what you're relying on. 
in your life. I encourage you to check out the book, uh, The Summary of Christian Doctrine. I think that's been going through in Danger Room, right? So, good for you guys. You may have recognized a little bit of the stuff that we just barely brushed on in here. But the point is, is that barely brushed on or not, the details of that are valuable, but it's that core concept, that philosophical truth of who God is in relation to us that's going to equip us to be wise and to be able to have beautiful lives before God and before man, whether they like it or not. Summary of Christian doctrine is great. It's concise and it's clear, and there's tons of Bible references. I want to encourage you all to be on so that it's like, it's basically like a little worksheet study guide. You know, you go through and it's like, it shows those doctrines and it explains them in a short, like, couple paragraphs or whatever. And then it's got like a whole bunch of biblical references where you can go back and you can see and study and it, it hand feeds it to you. You don't have to do exegesis and stuff, although that would be healthy for you to do, for you to dig into the scripture. But it's like right there and it's saying, these scriptures speak authoritatively to these truths about who God is. Absorb them, understand them, and you can trust these because at some point we all have to, for the most part, submit to an authority of some sort in terms of the knowledge that we've built up as believers across the centuries and even millennia. But yeah, as regular people, you can trust those things in that book specifically to be proper scriptures to cite those doctrines, to learn about who God is, and you can explore those things further. So get some. Understand wisdom. So let's ask some real questions now. A person who is known to be wise often says profound things, right? Because they truly understand the nature of God and man and our relationship with him. That's what profound things tend to be, is deep and spiritual or whatever, down to the nature of things. Um, and those things don't have to be smooth or motivational in their presentation. You know? But a person who's known to use wise and profound things as they explain and speak about things, 